This is the View from Apollo podcast, an ongoing conversation on alternative investing, economics, and the trends shaping up financial markets. The Fed shocked the markets with its dramatic pivot towards dovish monetary policy at the last FOMC meeting of 2023. Most investors took the news as a sign that the fight against inflation was over, and a soft landing was demonstrably in the cards. But Apollo's chief economist, Torsten Slock, is not so sure. In this episode, he shares his views with Apollo's global head of content, J.P. Vicente, about why we might not be out of the woods yet. All those things combined still say that it is still too early to declare that this is a soft landing. We still worry about that we could have a harder landing as a result of a sharper slowdown among consumers and a sharper slowdown among corporates and a sharper slowdown in lending among banks. In this wide-ranging conversation, Torsten and JP also discussed Torsten's 2024 economic and capital markets outlook, in particular his concern that we're still going to have higher rates and for longer than the rest of the market expects. So, let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm JP Vicente, Global Head of Content Strategy here at Apollo. And it is my pleasure to stand in once again for the host of the View from Apollo podcast, the one and only Dr. Torsten Slock, our Chief Economist here at the firm. That is because, as is now our biannual tradition, Torsten is our guest, not our host for this episode. That's right. Our usual interviewer is the interviewee for this particular show. And the reason why we're trading roles today is because Torsten has just published his 2024 Economic and Capital Markets Outlook with lots of insights and critical topics to talk about, including, of course, what's next for the U.S. economy after the Fed pivot. So with that, Torsten, welcome back to your show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. I'd like to start with your views on the Federal Reserve's latest meeting on December the 13th. And what a meeting that was. So the Fed held rates steady, penciled three rate cuts in 2024, and signaled that inflation had improved more quickly than anticipated. So what do you make of these statements going forward? Well, it was indeed a very big surprise what the Fed did at the last meeting of this year. The expectation was, based on what Jay Powell had said just a few weeks before, that the Fed would be emphasizing that inflation is still too high. They also had penciled in another rate hike for the end of this year. That was priced out by markets. But the fact that they came out on a relatively dovish side of the arguments, that was quite surprising. From a dual mandate perspective, the Fed focuses on getting inflation to 2% and having full employment. And it was quite clear that Jay Powell at the press conference mainly focused now on inflation seems to be more under control and therefore tilted towards saying, well, let's not have rates too high for too long if inflation is coming down. So there was almost a move away from focusing on inflation towards getting more worried about growth. So this was a surprise relative to the communication that the Fed has had throughout 2023. So this is really quite interesting, Dorsen, because it seems to me that the potential rate cuts, the expectations for potential rate cuts by the Fed like keep shifting, right? And we see the accompanying fast moves in bond yields as exemplified since November, let's say. So you, of course, have argued that rates may stay higher and for longer than what the market expects. Can you tell us how you come to that view? Yeah, there are three reasons why we still think interest rates are going to be higher for longer. I do appreciate that the market is now pricing in, as we speak, six cuts next year. But I still think that we should not forget the following arguments. First of all, 
inflation is still not under control. And most importantly, with this pivot from the Fed, that they are now easing financial conditions as a result of their actions. And the consequence of that is that we could begin to see the housing market is beginning to show signs of improving. We could see the labor market also show signs of strength over the coming months. We could also see consumers show signs of strength over the coming months, simply as a result of the Fed having pivoted away from now saying, now, well, now we worry less about inflation. And then that's the green light for markets to trade the stock market higher, to trade credit spreads tighter. So the first reason why we still think rates will stay higher for longer is that the pivot from the Fed itself that just happened here a few weeks ago is now going to have the consequence that it will be boosting the economy over the coming months and therefore is at risk of also boosting inflation. The second reason why we might see rates higher for longer is that even if the Fed does cut rates, let's not forget that we are still at a level of the Fed funds rate at five and a half, but Fed fund futures, in other words, market pricing, is pricing that rates are only going to come down and bottom at a level of around three and a half or four. So yes, even though interest rates may be coming down, when we say higher for longer, that means higher, and here in this case, higher than zero. We will be at a new higher level than what we were from 2008 to 2022. So the second point is that yes, it may be that the Fed will be cutting a bit, but higher is still a lot higher than where we were for the 14 years from 2008 to 2022. And the third and final argument for why we think that rates are going to be higher has to do with the expansion of the supply of treasuries in 2024. We have a significant still budget deficit. We still have QT, and therefore we have a significant supply of treasuries coming to the market in 2024. In fact, the average auction sizes across the yield curve will be about 23% higher than what they were in 2023. So the conclusion from that is that if there's more supply of treasuries coming along, and we should talk more about this later, but that argument is very important because that also means that there's a risk of particularly the long end of the yield curve not falling as much. So in summary, the Fed pivot itself is endogenously on its own lifting growth and therefore lifting inflation. That's a reason to expect rates higher for longer. We also have at the same time that even if the Fed cuts, we will still see rates at higher levels than where we were for a long time after 2008. And third and finally, at the long end of the yield curve, we should also, with the significant increase in supply of treasuries coming next year, we should also expect that to put some upward pressure on the level of interest rates. So for that reason, we do still think that interest rates are going to be higher than what the market is currently expecting. That's a powerful argument, Torsten. Thank you. And that begs the question, right, as a follow-up, because I asked the same question to you about six months ago, but it seems just as pertinent today, right? Are we talking about a permanently higher level of rates? And where do you see our start today or the natural rate of interest? Even the Fed is actually putting it at 2.5% or so. Is that too low? Well, that's absolutely correct. That There are two ways of looking at where the short-term interest rates will be in the long run. One is simply to look at the Fed's own dot plot, meaning the chart that they put out when they publish their forecast. And that shows you that in the longer run, we as investors should expect that the Fed funds rate is going to be at two and a half. So that's the simplest way of coming to the conclusion that the Fed thinks that in the long run, the Fed funds rate will be two and a half. Another slightly more complicated way is to look at the way that our style, the way that the long-term interest rate is calculated in the Laubach-Williams papers that have been doing this now for quite some time. And they also come to the conclusion 
that the real interest rate should be two and a half, combining with half a percent on the real side and 2% inflation, bringing nominal inflation to an overall level of two and a half. Now, your question was then, is that a likely rate that we will be at in the future? Well, there are some reasons, namely three different arguments for why it may actually be higher. First of all, we have demographics are changing. We have less immigration. So that means that wage inflation is now going to be higher in the US. And the risk of that is that therefore we may have some upward pressure on inflation and therefore some upward pressure on long-term interest rates in the long run. A second argument is that we have less globalization. In fact, we have deglobalization. If we now need to produce more goods domestically instead of producing them abroad, for example, in China, that will also put upward pressure on inflation and also put upward pressure on long-term interest rates. And finally, energy transition is also something that will be generally more costly and therefore imply also some upward pressure on inflation and therefore ultimately also a risk of upward pressure on long-term interest rates. So this is a bit of an arm-wavy discussion in terms of exactly quantifying these different forces. But to your question, there are some risks that we might begin to see a gradual tick higher in where interest rates will be in the long run. But for now, two and a half, and maybe over the next five years, slowly up towards three, is probably a good way to think about what is the risk-free rate in the long run where we're sitting here at the end of 2023. That makes a lot of sense. I want to discuss the topics of cyclical drivers for higher rates and cyclical drivers of inflation. So let me start with the former here, with the cyclical drivers of inflation. So while we have core inflation at around 4% or so, still above the Fed's target rate of 2%, much of the market, at least as of this recording on December 19, seems to be exhaling, right? As if the inflation battle is now gone, it's over. So do you share that view? Yes, no, why and why not? No, I still think it's too early to take the champagne bottle out here. I mean, <laughs> the Fed has clearly said, and several FOMC members after the Fed's meeting have come out and said, it is just too early to declare victory over inflation. And there are some very good reasons for that. Exactly as you said, core CPI inflation is currently 4.0. This was the data that came out for November. The Fed's target is that inflation should be 2. And given 4 is not 2, you can certainly quickly come to the conclusion that we are just not there yet. So several FOMC members, including Chris Waller, have been talking about that, well, let's Look at it in another six months' time where we are, and maybe inflation will continue to trend lower. And there are certainly some good arguments why that could be the case. And if you look at the subcomponents of inflation, you could expect certain components have been coming down a bit faster, others have been coming down a bit slower. But in very plain English, goods inflation has normalized, services inflation has not. So if we take into account what's happening now in the Suez Channel and the Red Sea, well, that's a risk to goods prices and in particular energy prices that could put some upward pressure on goods inflation. We also, in the housing market, as we spoke a bit about earlier, we're also beginning to see some signs of recovery. For example, in the last few days, we have had the Home Builder Sentiment Index has begun to increase. We're seeing home prices have started to increase. Housing starts have now started, surprisingly, to also increase. So so with that backdrop, housing makes up such a big share, namely 40% of the CPI index. So if housing also continues to recover, that could also, on the service side of the inflation calculation, begin to be a bigger problem. So 
I still think it is just too early, and I agree with the FOMC members who have talked about this, including more recently. It's just too early to declare victory and say that we are out of the woods. So that's why I still think that the road will be more bumpy for the Fed as we go into 2024. There will simply be more risks that inflation is not going to come down in a straight line. A final way of answering your question is that the initial move down that we have seen in inflation was really largely driven by the supply chains getting straightened out. And now that the supply chains are straightened out, then the last mile of getting inflation from four to two is going to be a lot harder because now we have picked the low-hanging fruit of straightening out supply chains. So the last mile, and this is a big debate at the moment in markets, of course, can we get from four to two as easily as we got from six to four? And my view is, no, we will probably have a more bumpy road where we will need to see a weaker housing market, a high unemployment rate in order to get inflation all the way down from four to two percent. Thorsten, let me ask you this. Do you think this is a little bit of an experiment by the Federal Reserve in terms of trying to create or try to regulate monetary policy here in a way that is shifting a little bit from that view strictly from inflation, like you just said, and trying to preserve that growth? You know, that's a much more difficult, a finer line to walk, right? As if you go and say, okay, let's bring this inflation down as fast as we can by hiking and jacking interest rates up as high as we can. Absolutely. I mean, the Fed's dual mandate says we should have inflation at two and we should have full employment. If we think back over the last 18 months, throughout that whole period, and basically up until today, we have had full employment. We've actually had a little bit more overheated labor market, but we definitely had a quite strong labor market. The whole problem that the Fed has been focusing on since they started raising interest rates in March of 2022 has exactly been on inflation, inflation, inflation. It's too high, it's too high, it's too high. And all the consequences of that for the economy, the consequences for markets, across the board, the almost entire focus was on inflation simply because the other side of the dual mandate, namely the labor market, was actually in reasonably good shape. So exactly as you're saying, the new communication that's coming out from them is to emphasize that, well, maybe inflation is less of a problem than what we thought six or 12 months ago. So if that's the case, maybe we can begin to worry a little bit less about inflation because it's now moved down to this level of around 4%. So it is absolutely the case that the Fed focus is now beginning to shift gradually away from inflation They will probably still say that they want inflation to tick lower and lower and lower. But as that shift happens over the next several months, the question is, can they take their eyes off the inflation ball or do they run the risk that inflation begins to go up again? And that's the worry that you can have, namely that if they take their eyes off the inflation ball and begin to worry about what's happening with the unemployment and weakness in the labor market and weakness elsewhere in the economy, that they run the risk that inflation might begin to tick higher again. And that's why the next three, four months are absolutely critical for whether the Fed pivot that they just did at the last meeting was actually justified or not. Because if inflation begins to go up, we will have a discussion later on where people might say, well, okay, they did pivot too early. Mm -hmm. So that's why the jury is still out on whether the pivot that we saw at the last meeting was actually a good idea or not. But they decided, exactly to your point, to say, let's focus less on inflation and a bit more on other things, and with the hope that inflation is going to continue to be well-behaved and move down over the coming quarters. But we still will have to wait and see if that is what will happen. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. So, Torsten, let's talk a little bit about the secular forces driving interest rates now. 
let me start with China and Japan, right? Talk to us about these structural issues, like China's diminishing purchases of U.S. treasuries and the loosening of the yield curve control policy in Japan. So how do these things affect the outlook for U.S. rates? Yeah, this is really important. So let's take them one at a time. And why is this important? Because what we just spoke about earlier is that the upward pressure on long-term interest rates is partly because of the supply of treasuries. But here we have two additional arguments for why there's upward pressure on long-term interest rates in the U.S. First, for example, with China. China has three problems at the moment. The first problem is demographics. We're getting to the other side of the one-child policy where the labor force over the next five to ten years will continue to shrink simply because there's not enough younger Chinese households entering the workforce. That means that demographics will be a headwind to Chinese growth over the coming five to ten years. The second problem for China is that they have a housing bubble that's deflating. In other words, they had very elevated home prices. Now home prices are coming down. That's also putting pressure on the Chinese economy and on Chinese growth going forward. And the third and final problem for China at the moment is that because the U.S. is slowing, because the U.S. is seeing higher interest rates, that's slowing growth down. Europe is slowing. That's also because of high interest rates that's slowing Europe down. All that means that exports from China to the U.S. of toys and T-shirts and ties and everything else will continue to slow down. And likewise, Chinese exports to Europe will continue to slow down. And what are the consequences of Chinese growth slowing and Chinese exports slowing? It is that China, therefore, if they sell less toys and T-shirts in the U.S., China will have less dollars to recycle into U.S. treasuries. So one very important consequence of this is that if China slows down, and in particular if that slowdown is driven by lower exports, that means that China will no longer have the same amount of dollars to buy U.S. treasuries, and that is at risk of putting upward pressure on U.S. interest rates. China is, of course, a story of slowing growth, and that will be, therefore, slowing demand for U.S. treasuries. Japan is more a policy choice. In Japan, the Bank of Japan has decided to exit yield curve control. Remember, yield curve control is that the Japanese government decides to say, we would like to raise the level of interest rates over time. And why are they raising the level of interest rates? Because they also need to get inflation under control. But if Japanese interest rates go up, Remember, Japanese investors are the biggest holders of U.S. treasuries. Japanese investors hold about a trillion dollars in U.S. treasuries. So if Japanese interest rates continue to move higher, that means that Japanese investors might begin to sell their treasuries and take their money back to JGBs, mainly to yields in Japan, where JGB yields in their own backyard now look more attractive. So that's why Japan is more a policy choice driven by higher inflation, where the Bank of Japan has decided to say, let's now increase the level of interest rates in Japan. And that's therefore raising the risk that Japanese investors will sell U.S. treasuries and take the money home and put it in to JGB yields. So in summary, these two countries, as much as you would normally say, well, how can this matter for U.S. fixed income markets and how can this matter for U.S. interest rates? It just happens to be at the moment that not only is there a big supply of treasuries, but we also have China slowing and we also have Japan exiting yield curve control. And these three factors combined are all at risk of putting upward pressure on long-term interest rates. So in summary, from a yield curve perspective, short interest rates are probably going to go down gradually next year. But the yield curve is probably going to steepen because long-term interest rates are no longer only driven by the Fed. They're also driven by the supply of treasuries, what's going on in China and what's going on in Japan. And those risks, again, are therefore that a steeper yield curve seems like where we're sitting right now, the most likely outcome as we go through 2024. 
Makes a lot of sense, Dorsen. I was just thinking, listening to you talk about Japan, the fact that Japan's debt as a percentage of GDP is so high, it yeah, more actually than 200%. Be, exactly behooves us to owe money to themselves. So that transition is also beneficial to the Japanese government, technically, right? Absolutely. And that's why also there's a long discussion, and that has just become even more intense more recently, that if Japanese interest rates go up, the debt servicing cost in Japan will also go up and go up quite quickly. So that's why there's a very significant debate about when you have an inflation problem like Japan has today, how do you raise interest rates either as a central bank or through short rates or through the yield curve control exit? Because the risk is that if you raise interest rates too much, the debt dynamics, in other words, servicing your debt can become very, very expensive. Very interesting. Well, another secular concern that we have here, Torsten, is the widening budget deficit in the U.S., which implies the need for more borrowing, as well as Uncle Sam's rising interest rates expenses when he comes to servicing the nation's existing debt. So talk to us about that and how these secular forces are impacting the so-called term premium for treasuries. In other words, the compensation that investors require for bearing interest rate risk over time. Yeah, there's a number of consequences of having high debt levels. The first consequence is, of course, when you have high debt levels, you also have high debt servicing costs. And over the next several years, we will see interest debt payments by the U.S. government approach a trillion dollars a year. That will now be more than the U.S. spends on defense. That will be more than the U.S. spends on a wide range of different things. So that means, therefore, that if we have more money needs to go towards servicing U.S. government debt, that, of course, means that money is not going to be spent in the economy, but instead going to be spent on paying debt hold, the people who own the debts and own the U.S. Treasury. So that's the first consequence, namely debt servicing cost goes up, means that we need, as a result of that, tax rates need to be higher, at least a bit higher to service debt. And the consequence, of course, of that is also that this is going to, at the highest level, just like we see in Japan, have some negative consequences for the economy. But the more serious issue, as you're highlighting, is that the supply of treasuries is beginning to open up all kinds of conversations in markets about who is it that's going to buy the U.S. government debt that is being offered. And what we have seen more recently, a few weeks ago, we had a 30-year auction of government bonds. And the problem that happened with this auction was that there was simply not a lot of demand for 30-year government bonds. Specifically, normally, the buyers of U.S. government bonds are the participants in the auctions. And one very important participant in auctions is the primary dealers. So the 19 primary dealers in the U.S., they are mandated to buy all the government bonds that no one else wants to buy at a treasury auction. And at this 30-year auction, in very plain English, normally 10% of an auction size is bought by the primary dealers because then they have some inventory for anyone who wants to trade 30-year government bonds or 10-year government bonds or 5-year government bonds. But at this auction, the amount of treasuries that went to primary dealers was not 10%, which was the historical average, but it was like more like 25%. So in other words, there was simply not enough demand from foreigners, from domestic buyers, meaning banks, pension funds, insurance companies, households. And this opened up a debate here when this happened in November that a lot of people in markets started saying, whoa, if we suddenly can have questions asked about will there be enough buyers of U.S. 
treasuries, in particular in the long end of the yield curve. What are then the implications if we think about that next year, the average auction size across the whole yield curve will be 23% higher in 2024 than what it was in 2023. So the consequence of this is that in financial markets going into next year, it is not a particularly exciting topic to spend time on, but unfortunately, we do all need to spend some time now on looking at auctions. What is demand for U.S. government debt? What bid-to-cover ratio do, meaning was there a lot of demand relative to what was the supply? Did the auction fail? In other words, was there enough demand when the auction came through, was the demand from foreigners particularly high? Was the demand from domestic investors particularly high? All those things will end up being still something that we need to monitor to figure out to what degree is the increase in treasury supply going to matter for financial markets or not. So far, it looks like we are still on a good path. Things have since stabilized. But the fact that we could have such a sudden jump in when that 30-year auction came out, 30-year interest rates jumped 15 basis points in a matter of minutes. So we can have some fairly important things that happen. And if we get such a repeat of that situation, so the short answer to your question is, there's just no way around it. We need to spend some more time, all of us in markets, looking at the outcome of treasury auctions and to what degree demand was strong or demand was weak. Yeah, interesting. And just listening to you, we have slowing bank loan growth. And then if they actually have to purchase even more, like the 25% that you just talked about, I mean, that could even crowd out the lending to the private sector even further. Absolutely. This is a really critical point. I mean, page one in your finance textbook would tell you that there's a risk-free interest rate and the risk-free interest rate matters for literally everything, pricing of stocks, of IG credit, high yield credit, loans, everywhere in financial markets, the risk-free rate is the most important variable. And now what we are exactly, as you're pointing out, talking about here is that the stock of the risk-free rate, meaning the stock of U.S. government bonds outstanding, is going to grow significantly next year. So what that does is when you grow the stock of the risk-free rate, that begins to, in the lack of better language, suck dollars out of other asset classes that now will be coming into the risk-free asset class. And that, of course, poses a risk in particular, of course, to equities, but that also poses a risk to financial markets more broadly if more money will now need to go to the risk-free asset simply because it's growing so much in size. So that's also why you might begin to see loan growth slow down even faster if you suddenly begin to see the risk-free asset grow and therefore sucking dollars out of other asset classes. That's excellent. Thank you, Torsten. Well, I read your 2024 Economic and Capital Markets Outlook paper, which, by the way, is available for download at our Apollo Academy website at apolloacademy.com, and I encourage our listeners to check it out. But in the paper, you argue that investors may be overlooking some fundamental deterioration in the economy, the U.S. economy, in favor of focusing on the potential for a soft landing. I'm referring to things like credit card and auto loan delinquencies rising, rising defaults among the most leveraged companies, among other things. So it seems that if you look beneath the hood, right, the economy is not as strong as it might seem. So am I reading you correctly? And if so, would that call for lower rates? So Absolutely, you're reading that correctly. Let's now talk about exactly what are the consequences of the Fed having raised interest rates. And the consequence of Fed having raised interest rates can be seen in three different areas, namely among consumers, corporates, 
and banks. So let's take these in turn. Exactly as you're highlighting, we are beginning to see delinquency rates go up on credit cards and auto loans, in particular for younger households. People in their 20s and 30s are seeing delinquency rates move higher. And what characterizes people in their 20s and 30s is that they generally have three characteristics. They generally have lower incomes, they generally have lower savings, and they generally have lower FICO scores. So that means that younger households with lower savings and lower earnings are getting hit by interest rates going up. And in that sense, that's not surprising. When you raise interest rates, the textbook would predict that for households that have more debt and households that have lower earnings are, of course, more vulnerable to interest rates going up. So in some sense, my best guess is that the Fed would say, well, of course, when we raise interest rates, you should expect to see consumers to begin to see an impact as a result of interest rates going up. And that's exactly what you're seeing in credit card and auto loan delinquencies. Secondly, for corporates, exactly as you're highlighting, you're also beginning to see Companies, in particular highly levered companies in high yield and in loans, especially companies in tech growth and in particular in venture capital, they are especially hard hit by interest rates staying at these higher levels. And why is that? Take venture capital as the extreme example. Venture capital is defined by investing in companies that have no cash flow. So, of course, if you invest in a company with no cash flow that have high levels of debt, in other words, high levels of leverage, low coverage ratios, and weak cash flows. Those are the companies that are defaulting. These are the companies that are going out of business. That's why the Chapter 11 bankruptcy data shows that in November, we saw 700 companies go into Chapter 11. This is the highest level after the pandemic. So the conclusion is that we are also, when it comes to corporates, seeing the most indebted and the most levered companies with the weakest earnings are being impacted by rates staying high and, in our view, continuously staying high going into next year. And finally, for the banking sector, we're also seeing the impact of interest rates having gone up, meaning the Fed having increased interest rates. Namely, we're seeing large banks are slowing down their lending, small banks are slowing down their lending. So taking this all together, when people say, this is a soft landing, there's nothing to worry about, our response is, well, let's look under the hood Exactly as you're pointing out, let's look at the credit fundamentals for consumers, look at the credit fundamentals for firms, and let's look at what banks are doing in response to interest rates going up. And we do worry about, in particular with the start of our conversation in mind, that rates might be higher for longer. We do worry that we will still have more downside risk on highly levered consumers, still more downside risk on highly levered firms, and still also some more downside risk in the banking sector, not least also because of the banking sector has commercial estate, they have some issues with the health to maturity book being underwater because rates have gone up. All those things combined still say that it is still too early to declare that this is a soft landing. We still worry about that we could have a harder landing as a result of a sharper slowdown among consumers, a sharper slowdown among corporates, and a sharper slowdown in lending among banks. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm just going to drill a little bit more into what you just said because there might be, as you just said, weaknesses like Bruin in the economy that haven't showed up in the data yet, right? So what is your view? Where are you putting the odds of a hard landing in 2024? Yeah, at this point where we're sitting right now, I mean, the consensus clearly has and the market clearly has in mind that this is a soft landing. We still think that there's a 60% chance of a recession. In other words, a 60% chance that we will have two quarters of negative growth in 2024. And with that forecast, we still worry about that it is just too risky today to go for too much risk in risky assets. Because remember, in particular, middle market companies, smaller companies that are highly levered with low coverage ratios, with weak cash flows, they will continue to be vulnerable if you have this 
double whammy of interest rates staying higher for longer and an elevated risk of a recession. The consensus thinks, if you look at Bloomberg, for example, ECFC Go, that there's a 50% chance of a recession. So we are not too far away from the consensus. It's just that markets are trading very different from what the consensus, at least in the economics consensus, is expecting at the moment. So yes, we still worry more about downside risk. So let me put this in different words in plain English. Let's, in this case, say I bought rain insurance. It may not rain tomorrow. It may not even rain for the next week. But if it does start raining in the next two, three weeks, then I will be very happy. And particularly if it starts raining really hard, I'll be very happy that I bought that insurance. So that's why from an investing perspective, I still think that capital preservation, the conservative approach of protecting the downside risks is still, given where risks are at the moment, the most intelligent approach to asset allocation. I think that makes a lot of sense, Dorsen. But I obviously also want to challenge you a little bit and ask about the other side of this coin, right? The possibility, indeed, of a soft landing. It's not totally out of the question yet, right? So what would it take for that to happen? Well, there are two reasons why our forecast could be wrong. The first reason is that what has been the reason why the economy has been so strong is that households had a lot of excess savings during the pandemic. And These savings, in particular for middle and upper income households, are still present in the data. So if households still, in particular, high-end and middle-income consumers continue to spend and continue to run down their savings, it could keep consumption afloat. It could keep the economy afloat. So the first thing that we all underestimated in 2023, which could continue to be a force in 2024, is that during the pandemic, households saved a lot of money because households didn't go to eat at restaurants, didn't fly in airplanes, didn't stay at hotels, didn't go to concerts, sporting events. And as a result of these excess savings, which peaked at about $2 trillion in late 2021, we may still have a tailwind to economic growth going into next year. So the first reason why we could have a soft landing or even why we might have it back to a no landing is that spending among consumers, in particular middle-income and high-income consumers, could remain quite solid. The second reason why we could still have a soft landing or even, again, might run the risk of a no landing is that the government still has three policies in place that are providing a significant tailwind to growth. And those are the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the Infrastructure Act. Those three policies are supporting manufacturing of semiconductor facilities across the country. The Inflation Reduction Act is supporting EVs, batteries, across the board, transition. that's also a tailwind to the economy. And of course, finally, the Infrastructure Act is also a tailwind to economic growth. So in summary, The reason why we could be wrong in terms of the downside risk that we are seeing and that we're worried about in the outlook is that on the fiscal front, we have the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act that still provides tailwind. And on the consumer front, if consumers are willing to keep the savings rate lower for even longer, the savings rate is very low at the moment because consumers are running down the excess savings they had during the pandemic. But if the consumer still is willing to run down their savings and spend a lot of money, for example, because we all come to the conclusion that we were sitting at home during COVID, so now we need to spend some more time with our families, uh, traveling and with our friends, well, that could still provide a tailwind to growth going into next year. I still think these two forces, as much as they are upside risk to the outlook, I still think that they are both running out of steam as I look into 2024. But To your question, I think that it is important to recognize that these two reasons for why growth was so strong in 2023, they could continue in 2024, at least for another three, six months before they, in our view, is at risk of running out of steam. 
That makes a lot of sense, Dorsen. And you mentioned the U.S. consumer, which is obviously a big driver of the U.S. economy here. And you talk about two big issues in your paper that are sort of exogenous, if you would, to Fed policy per se, which is the end of the excess savings that people had during COVID and the restarting of student loan payments. Can you take us through those dynamics going into 2024? Because if the Fed can raise rates, lower rates, those dynamics are still going to be there, right? Absolutely. And these are two very important points, because as much as I just said that excess savings could still be a tailwind, it's very clear when you look at the data that we continue to see a rundown of excess savings every single month where households are spending more money than what they otherwise would have done. So in very plain English, my spending at the moment, in this example, say is 102, but your income is only 100. So that means that we are seeing that there is more spending than what households normally do. And as that continues to run out over the next several quarters, then we will expect that to begin to be a drag on GDP growth. So that's a very important tailwind that's beginning to become less and less of a force and ultimately will no longer be a support to growth. And the other factor, as you highlighted, that we should certainly also talk about is that student loan payments restarted on October the 1st. This was basically a policy choice. Someone could have decided that student loan payments should have restarted in March of this year or February of next year or 2025 or way back, say, in 2022. It just happened to be the case that it was decided student loan payments have to begin on October the 1st. And that's, of course, important when we think about GDP and consumption for the fourth quarter because we're now beginning to see signs in the retail sales data of some slowdown, in particular in October, where this student loan payments restarted. So the consequence of this is that student loan payments on average for households with student loans is $300 a month. The median household in the US has income of roughly $4,000 a month. So if I divide 300 with 4,000, that means that people who pay student loans and now have to start paying them back, they need to take about a little bit less than 10% of their incomes and that used to go towards consumption, and now that instead will go towards paying your student loan. So in summary, the excess savings running out of steam, student loan payments restarting, exactly as you said, this has nothing to do with the Fed raising rates. These are just risks that are coming on top of the Fed having increased interest rates, and therefore also downside risks as we look into 2024. Makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for these insights, Dorsten. So with this conversation as a backdrop, what are the implications of what we've discussed so far for financial markets, both public and private going forward? Yeah, so if we take it at the highest level, there are really two key conclusions. The first conclusion is interest rates will be higher for longer. And what we mean by that is that the level of interest rates is not going back to zero. It's very difficult where we sit today to see why interest rates should go back to zero. It will require some very dramatic shock that we just don't know at this point what that might or might not be. But so far, we should be all planning with a baseline scenario that interest rates are not going back to zero. Note that this is not saying that the Fed funds rate will stay at five and a half for a long time. It's just saying that even if the Fed funds rate goes down, it will, according to Fed Fund Futures and to our expectations, go down to a level of somewhere in the range of 35 to 4%. So higher for longer means we will be higher relative to the long period where we had zero. So the first conclusion is interest rates are going to stay higher and higher than they have been in a long time, simply because even if the Fed cuts rates, we will still remain at a high level. The second conclusion at a macro level is, okay, interest rates are staying higher, 
What are the risks associated with that? Well, if you have interest rates are staying at a higher level, that of course comes with a second risk, namely of an elevated probability of a recession. The consensus, as we spoke about, has a 50% chance of a recession in the next 12 months. So with these two macro conclusions in mind, higher interest rates, elevated risk of recession, you could first say, well, why is that the case? Because we're simply not done fighting inflation. So we need elevated interest rates, and with that comes an elevated risk of a recession. With that in mind, let's talk about the investment implications. Well, of course, if you have higher interest rates, the first conclusion is that fixed income, and in particular credit, and especially private credit, looks attractive. You can buy, of course, the base rate and get the Fed funds rate and get your 5.5%, but you could also buy safe, risk-adjusted returns and get good, decent pickup if you go up in the quality, in particular in private credit, top of the capital structure, first lien, senior secured, mainly large cap, of course, to make sure that you get steady cash flows in bigger companies. That can give you a more juicy return relative to what you get in the base rate. So the first conclusion is bonds and fixed income, and in particular private credit, up in quality is the mantra, both in high yield and in IG, continues to look attractive. And why up in quality? Because remember, if you buy triple C, low-rated credit in a situation where rates are now going to be more elevated for a while, you run the risk that you will be buying companies, triple C, even some single B names that are higher leverage, lower coverage ratio, weaker cash flows. And those are exactly companies that will be more vulnerable if interest rates are going to stay high. So up in quality in high yield, up in quality in IG, and also up in quality in loans is the number one mantra in fixed income. And get the yields that you can get while that interest rates are so high relative to where they've been for a very long period from 2008 to 2022. Broadening out the discussion, of course, the consequence also of that is that if there is an elevated risk of a recession, that also argues for up in quality. But that also argues for staying away if there's a recession from tech, growth, and venture capital and areas that are particularly vulnerable from the double whammy of interest rates staying high and an elevated risk of an economic slowdown. Because economic slowdown, of course, will hit the companies the most that have no cash flows. So that's why also a very critical key conclusion here is large cap is going to be more attractive than middle market or small cap simply because an elevated risk of a recession and if you do have a recession tends to hit small cap harder and finally for equities both private equity and public equity it really is a discussion again about the same dimension namely are the companies that you are investing in equities are they sensitive to these two macro conclusions namely interest rates staying high and an elevated risk of a recession. And with that backdrop, of course, companies that tend to do best are companies that do not have high leverage and companies that have steady cash flows and are high quality and not vulnerable to the risk of a recession. That makes a lot of sense. And also, I think that this dynamic of credit over equity at this stage, given the points that you just made, is kind of like true across the board as well. I would assume that real estate, you have the same opinion. Agree. Because at the moment, cash flows coming because the level of yields are so much higher than they've been for a long time, cash flows in any cash paying asset are going to be more attractive and are going to raise the bar for the returns you need to see in equities simply because fixed income or credit has now become so much more attractive than it's been for a long time. 
makes a lot of sense. Well, Torsten, we have reached our allotted time here, but it's not over yet because <laughs> each episode you ask your guests for a personal recommendation. So today it's my turn to ask you, what is your personal recommendation for us today? So I have been married to my wife for 25 years and we are tonight going in to see Billy Joel. And we also have some wonderful kids. We're two of teenagers and one is 20. And we're going with them in the next few days to see Travis Scott. Oh my God, so, um, congratulations. I, that's on a the mixed music bag for you there as my personal <laughs> recommendation. But as you can hear, it's a, I'm very diversified in my music taste. So I look much forward to, to going to those concerts. And I try to follow along as good as I can on all the different music fronts of everything that's moving. That sounds terrific. Congratulations on 25 years of marriage. <laughs> I'm getting close. I'm not just there a couple of years, but I'll get there in a couple of years. But that's wonderful. And the music is actually really great. It's funny that you mentioned this because my wife and I just bought tickets to see Billy Joel. Actually, we were seeing him in February. Okay. <laughs> so our music tastes are we'll very similar. Notes. Exactly. I have to compare notes on that <laughs> one. That's fantastic. So I also have a personal recommendation, and mine today is a book that was written by Arthur Brooks. It's called From Strength to Strength, and the book is, in essence, about finding purpose and meaning as we age. So in the book, Brooks, who teaches at Harvard, actually, challenges many conventional assumptions about professional success and decline as we get older, and he discusses how to find opportunities for progress and new strengths as we advance in life. So he takes a really interesting multidisciplinary approach to addressing these issues, making it for a fun and a thought-provoking book. So I highly recommend that. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Torsten, so much for being here with us today. And once again, I'd like to remind our listeners that Torsten's 2024 Outlook paper is available for download at apolloacademy.com. And of course, as always, I'd like to thank you all so very much for listening. Wishing you a happy holiday season from all of us here at Apollo. Well, thank you, JP, and happy holidays, everyone. This podcast was recorded on December 19, 2023. Thanks for listening. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible, or by visiting ApolloAcademy.com, our educational website dedicated to alternative investing, where you can also sign up to have Torsen's Daily Spark economic blog delivered directly to your inbox. Once again, thanks for listening. Apollo Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. There can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast, including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, 
or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature. Due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof or other variations thereon or comparable terminology.